because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. About two weeks ago, I read a book that has quickly become one of my favorite books. It's called Where's My Flying Car by a computer scientist known as Jay Stores Hall. Also, uh, he goes by Josh, as we'll see. And this book really blew me away. It's the, the question it's uh, supposedly trying to answer is why don't we have flying cars? But it's really a broader examination of why is, are, is there stagnation in so many areas of life? And as we'll discuss in the interview, there's stagnation in many more areas of life than I thought that there was stagnation. And what's fascinating is he came into this without a really strong view of what was going on, but his analysis leads to thinking that a key part of it is uh, decline or at least lack of improvement in energy production. And then politically, an enormous amount of regulation. And then culturally, what I would call the green movement. So I just found this totally fascinating that somebody coming at these issues from a totally different perspective came to very similar conclusions uh, that I've come to, but just in just an incredibly wide spectrum of fields with really a ton of erudition. And even in energy, this guy knows a ton. So it's just, as we'll learn, he spent eight years on this book, but I think he's been thinking about these issues his whole career. It's a super impressive book, and I was really eager to have him on the show to talk about both what's causing stagnation uh, and also, in particular, what can we do to improve nuclear energy? Because he has a long section about nuclear energy. I learned a lot about it, and so I wanted to talk to him about what's the potential of nuclear and what can we do to liberate or decriminalize it. So hope you enjoy this interview with Chase Torres Hall, author of Where Is My Flying Car? And I hope you pick up a copy of the book. By the way, I should say, it is a very long book. You don't have to read everything in the book. You can kind of skim it. I think I read very carefully at least two thirds of it. There were parts of it that were uh, less of interest to me, but that thing is, uh, it's, it's really a goldmine. So hope a lot of you get it and I hope the book becomes even more successful. So enjoy the interview and I'll be back on the other side. I'm joined now by Jay Stores Hall, author of one of my new favorite books, Where Is My Flying Car? Jay Stores Hall slash Josh, welcome to Power Hour. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, very. Yeah. So I, I've been, I just inhaled your book over the last week. So let me just ask first, how did this, so one thing I'll, um, I'll probably elaborate on more is just, it's, it's a pretty staggering book in terms of the scope of things you cover. And the thing that really shocked me is there's, uh, this pertains actually to one of the quotes you use in the book, which I think is by um, Heinlein, who says something like, I've never seen the media report anything accurately that I've ever seen, something to that effect. And yeah. usually when people write a general book that includes energy, uh, let alone environmental philosophy, it's just all wrong. And yet I, I didn't disagree with one thing you said about energy. You just, you knew it with a huge amount of depth and I learned quite a bit. So I was just super impressed that this, you seem like a polymath. I'm curious, how did this book come together? Well, it was, it was, it was kind of an interesting thing. I'd, I'd written a book about um, nanotechnology and a book about artificial intelligence. Um, 
and I was looking for a change of pace. So uh, it, it had taken me two years apiece for the previous books, and it was um, 2010. And so I, I looked and I saw that the, the 50th anniversary of the Jetsons and of John Glenn and of a whole, whole bunch of Telstar and a whole bunch of other stuff, including Arthur C. Clarke's Profiles of the Future, um, was, were all coming up in, in two years. And I said, well, that'd be cool. I'll, I'll write a book about flying cars. Um, so um, I, I started in on it, and the deeper I got into it, the deeper I got. And so I didn't finish it in two years. I didn't finish it in five years. It, it, it took eight years before I, I finished it. And then basically, while I was working on it, uh, it, it, it turned into my intellectual memoirs. All right. So that... That makes sense. I mean, eight, eight years, I can see that particularly because it's obviously drawing on a lifetime of knowledge. Now, I got to ask, since you just told me this before, you'd mentioned that you had read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. When did, when did you read that? I suspected that reading the book, but I wasn't sure. When did you read that book? I'm not really even sure I could tell you. Um, I, I mean, I have a tendency, especially when I was doing the research for, for my book, I have had a tendency to just... Uh, uh, see a reference to some book and download it through Kindle and, and uh, you know, read it over the next, you know, few weeks as I had random time. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, the one of the things I love about the book is there are just so many great quotations. I, I, di I do Kindle. I read almost all in Kindle because I love the highlight feature. And I just organized my highlights from your book last night, and I, I had highlighted 22,000 words. <laughs> which is <laughs> I love which, it which is a lot I should show you my organization it's pretty cool I think how I how I uh, did it but it's yeah it's it's some super interesting stuff so let's start kind of at the beginning one of the core ideas slash observations you're working with in this book is this idea of the great stagnation that I think the economist Tyler Cowen popularized as a term so let's start out with what is the great stagnation and what's the evidence for it well, the Great Stagnation, from my point of view, is slightly different from Cowan's. Uh, he, being an economist, he, he likes to look at trends and graphs and all this sort of stuff, and, and, and I look at those too. But, I mean, in, in, in very simple terms, uh, in the first 50 years of commercial flight, we went from uh, a thing built by the Wright brothers that looks like a box kite to the 747, and in the next 50 years, we went from the 747 to the 747. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's like, what's up here? I mean, <laughs> progress just stopped. Um, and it stopped in a whole bunch of different places um, in it, at various levels. And so when I started uh, thinking about flying cars, uh, I, I went back to the, the early 60s and got a a list that I put together from you know the various great science fiction writers and and futurists and and all that sort of stuff um, and started looking at which ones actually came to pass and which ones didn't and and in fact some came to pass even more or even better or even faster than than the the science fiction writers thought and some didn't. So uh, I, uh, I was trying to find essentially a pattern to that. And the pattern I found surprised even me. I mean, I had suspected 
which is why I went underwent the exercise. But I had suspected that there was going to be, you know, some correlation with energy intensity of the of the um, technologies that 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 failed or flatlined or or whatever. And um, so I I I wrote with a tech, I took this list and I said, okay, let's look at the uh, all the technologies in terms of uh you know how energy intensive they would be and in terms of uh how much they actually came to fruition and i was i was surprised by my own uh basically guesswork about the i i just i i gave a uh a purely subjective guess for uh for each one of these things and then i plotted them out and and I was really surprised at the shape of the graph. It was it was the lower left half of a uh, of a rectangle, and there was nothing in the upper right half. And I, I it, that was a lot more uh, correlation than I had than even so I had the, expected. The upper the upper right half being the energy intense potential innovation right, yeah. that didn't come to pass. Energy intensive on, on one of the scales, and uh, more than. Uh, or as much as predicted um, realization on the other one. So what are some of the energy intensive things that were on this graph that didn't come to pass that were projected? Uh, you know, space travel, um, colonies on the moon, flying cars, uh, passenger planes that went 8,000 miles an hour, uh, on and on. So what, what, you you mentioned that you had this guess. What what informed this guess from the beginning that you suspected that these would be the ones that did not come to fruition? Well, you can't be you know you can't sit there and and, and think about all of them without you know having some hint that that um, the ones that that were low power were much more likely to happen than the ones that were high power. But the uh, um, uh, you know, power to cheap emitter didn't happen. Um, I mean, nope, that's a uh, almost a, a stereotype of, of uh, future mispredictions. But the uh, um, the fact that it it seemed to work out that way for just about everything I thought about um, was startling even to me. So one one aspect of the great stagnation. Because uh, this you know, is something that's very disputed in different ways, including how widespread it is. One thing that really struck me as powerful was, I forget the exact term, but this phenomenon of the cost of certain kinds of things being either the same or a higher percentage of income. So even healthcare that's improved a lot is sort of a staggeringly higher percentage of income that's not just explained by its improvement. And there were certain others. What's, what's that term? The cost disease. The cost disease. Yeah, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh well, there there are some things that have just gotten cheaper and cheaper, as you would expect, as we went down the learning curve with a, a given technology, and some things that seem utterly resistant uh, to that phenomenon, and in fact went against the flow. Um, and healthcare is one of them, and education is one of them, um, and uh, they. They, they seem to have some correlation with the things that people think are really too important to be left to the marketplace or something. Um, 
like healthcare and education. Uh, so the uh, it turns it turns out, as far as I can tell, that that you know when when people get in there and and, and mess with our normal way of providing things, um, they don't do as good a job as they thought they were going to, and and in fact they tend to screw things up. Yeah, I mean, not as good a job as as free markets is such an understatement. I mean, I mean, computing is the, you know, the obvious example of just staggering progress, which you couldn't expect everything to have. But just this whole phenomenon you point out with the Industrial Revolution, where everything takes a smaller and smaller amount of time to produce a given value. And then you have with these crucial areas, it's not like healthcare and education are things that one can do without. They're not a certain kind of toy. And yet that taking up a huge percentage of one's time is really disturbing. And so that, that leads to the, the broader question. Yes, what's, it is. <laughs> your, what's your basic explanation for the great stagnation? And, and, and I'm curious, what did you come up? What did you come in with? What did I come in with? Um, well, look, the thing is that that's why I took eight years rather than two to write the book. I, I, I got there and it was just, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, so the, uh, the thing is, first I discovered this. Um, uh, I mean, not not completely unexpected, but you know, this 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 remarkable um, energy thing. And then I went looking at, at energy per se and um, discovered the, uh, the flatlining of what I call uh, the Henry Adams curve, which is um, the fact that you know the amount of energy total and per capita that our civilization has used since the original turn of the Industrial Revolution back in 1700 um, has been going up in a nice exponential scale um, of, of 2% per person, but up to 7% for civilization as a whole um, in, uh, in, in a long, long-term uh, very nice trend, and in the 1970s, when uh, we created the Department of Energy by, uh, for some strange reason, uh, it flatlined, and the amount of energy that, that, that's available uh, per capita in particular uh, in our civilization is the same as it was in 1980. So it how does that – So it, how does that – It quit growing. <laughs> Sorry. So was that initially your, yeah, just in terms of your development and then your final explanation. So going in, you had had a strong sense of that. What was your, what, well, I guess, what, what's your kind of final synthesis explanation now of the great stagnation, if you were to summarize it? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a several layer sandwich. I mean, that the, the great stagnation itself in, in terms of um, things that we didn't get is, is the top layer. And then the, um, flatlining of the Henry Adams curve is uh, the next layer, and then you have to look at why on earth that would have happened just then. Um, and I wound up getting into things like uh, cultural criticism and, and, and uh, yeah, as, ascent up the uh, – um, uh, what's his name? The, the – um, All right, I'm 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 stalling on a word here. Um, That's okay. But we the, can uh, cut it. 
the uh, anyway the 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 thing is that that in in the seventies you had the, the the outgrowth of the of the counterculture revolution of the of the sixties and people started um, thinking that basically they didn't need to make physical life any better they needed to make spiritual life better or something and um the thing about the 70s in particular is how many different kind of things people started thinking were more important than uh making a living or or helping people uh get their work done and 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 all the sort of things that uh, that had been what progress had been thought to consist of throughout the uh, 20th century and the 19th century and the 18th century. Um, and you can't really believe that any one of these uh, had big forces behind it particularly. It had to be something that would allow them all to happen at once. Um, and that's uh, that's my explanation. Um, of, one possible way of looking at it is that my generation, the the, uh, um, the Aquarians, the uh, baby boomers, call them what you will, um, was the the first generation in, in in quite some time in America that neither had a war or a a frontier. And I think that that when I say didn't have a war, I didn't have a war that mattered. Uh, you know, and 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 so instead of uh, just all chipping in and supporting the war effort the way they did in World War II, I mean, you could be you could be thrown out of any any building um, by criticizing the the war in, in in World War II. It was just totally the cultural thing that you had to to, to support. Well, in the sixties, it was the other way around. So the the you know the fact that we had this 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 small foreign war and, and during the during the sixties um, doesn't qualify in that sense. So so we, we didn't really have something that mattered that that we had to fight for. And then we um didn't have a an outlet for people to to go out and settle a frontier and, and uh uh make a better world for themselves as well as for everybody else. Um and that's that's my best guess. I mean, uh, you, there are there are others, and uh, uh, you can you can decide which ones you like. But that was that was what it seemed like to me. And 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 having grown up with that generation, um, I at least have a little bit of a of a hint of how they thought about things. Interesting. I know you've read a ton, and you mentioned Ayn Rand once in the book, at least. Have you read the Anti-Industrial Revolution by Ayn Rand? That essay. I don't remember that particular one. Yeah, this is interesting because she she had a book that came out in the late '60s called "The New Left," or, or the, the I think the book was called "Yeah, The New Left: The Anti-Industrial Revolution." And so there's one essay called "The Anti-Industrial Revolution," and one was called "The Left: Old and New." And the reason I bring yeah. it up is because it shaped my view a lot because the the anti-industrial revolution focuses on what I what's often called the uh, environmental movement that I call the anti-impact movement, and this idea that impact is immoral, impacting nature is immoral, and will inevitably be, be self-destructive, 
you know, that I think clearly permeates everything that you're talking about and you have some amazing documentation. But her point in the essay, The Left Old and New, is that part of what's going on is that the left failed at production slash impacting nature, which it used to embrace. It used to embrace, you know, we're going to outproduce you. The Soviet Union is going to be the industrial hero of the world. And when the anti-capitalist movement figured they couldn't produce, they turned to production as evil, uh, impact as evil. And so you had this thing where the anti-capitalist movement actually, in a sense, more logically uh, opposed production. And so you had all of those forces that all those idealistic forces that were opposing capitalism for generations now focused on impact is bad. And that permeated our whole civilization and regulatory apparatus. Yeah. And if you remember, I I talk a lot about uh, H.G. Wells, who was Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the the spiritual forefather of that. Um, But his his notion of, 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 of progress was, in fact, uh, you know, aggressive and, and highly technological and, and, and so forth. And uh, um, it was the, the villains in his, in his stories that were the, the, the people who, who turned out to be like the uh, uh, anti-industrial revolution. But uh, um, I, think, I think a large, a large part of what happened is that uh, we just got a new religion in the, uh, in the 60s, grew up, um, there were various leaders and so forth, but, but none that was so important to it that you could call him a messiah of it. But it was uh, – I have this I have this really great quote in the book that um, turns out to be a lot more cogent today than it was when he wrote it or when I read it and quoted it that uh you know he 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 just hates the human race and and he he hopes that that nature um is rid of us and so forth and uh and, and he says you know blah 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 hopefully at some point the right virus will come along um and uh that that kind of uh rings a, a bit more of a bell nowadays than it did uh back back then but that was the that was the way people uh, felt and to some extent feel still feel that uh, you know we are a scourge on the planet and uh, that we the, you know something needs to happen to us and and I think that uh, to some extent you know they're, they're just they're they're calling their own name I mean they 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 don't want um, humanity to uh, survive and prosper because we they think that uh, uh, humanity is is just a bad thing. And, and where that came from, I, I, I really have a hard time grasping. So yeah, I'll, I'll have a lot to say about the nature of the movement and some of the psychology in my, my next book on fossil fuels. But since you mentioned virus, I think you need to give your, or I'll give you credit because you have a line, it might be with respect to hysteria over climate where you say something like, this is gonna be less significant than a particularly deadly flu strain or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that this was written in what, 2018? So it really seemed to anticipate uh, this this coronavirus. And I, I think it was a, you know, that's, it's just- that. a, I don't remember it, but- uh, Oh yeah, it's I'll, in I'll, one of yeah. my, it's in one of my 22,000. Okay. Uh, words <laughs> that I've, words of that I've, that okay. I've, yeah. That I've highlighted. Yeah, you should. Right. You should like. I think it's like some some mm-hmm. yeah strain of the flu. So there's this. So I mean, I, I yeah, I was reading this and just it. It's fascinating to me that you came in 
with certain inclinations and then they got validated more than you you thought like my background is the philosophy of it so it's kind of my like I came in with a lot of those expectations about how these things would work, but it's fascinating to right. see a, a scientist and a practitioner come to them like more inductively uh, from, from the beginning. Another aspect that was just as shocking to me that you came to maybe even more were your views on government funding of research, because here you talk about things that are incredibly uh, unusual to talk about. So you to talk about how government funding of research could promote stagnation? Because the general idea is, of course, all of the amazing advances of our world, are, get all the credit goes to the government. If we just invested more in government innovation, we'd get more. And, th you know, that's the, the solution well, I, to everything. I, is more I completely innovation. believe that when I, when I started out, I, I was a government uh, supported researcher for most of my working life. And um, in in my case, it it didn't really hurt. I mean, there was a uh, I was I was working in computer architectures, and and we built stuff that uh, uh, I mean some of the some of the guys uh, who were uh, my uh, colleagues in 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 the field uh, went on to be you know head of research at Nvidia and stuff like that. So um, we were we were doing stuff that actually helped quite a bit. Um, and if it all worked like that, it would be wonderful. But my uh, expectations turned out to be wrong once I, once I got deeper into the subject. And, uh, uh, and I have a, a couple of, of experiences, um, most notably in nanotechnology, where uh, it, it became clear that the, um, the government uh, sort of involvement in the in the technology um, was hurting it rather than rather than helping it. And uh, once I had that pattern rubbed in my face, um, then I kind of went looking for it elsewhere and 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 found it elsewhere. So can you describe some of the mechanisms? In particular, you have this term that harkens Machiavelli. Right, yeah. Well, as a computer scientist, I, I have to point out that uh, I, I first read that quote from Machiavelli in uh, uh, Knuth's Volume 2, Sorting and Searching, um, where he is a, a really uh, masterful finder of, of, of cool quotations and, and uses it to uh, illustrate his, his, his gorgeous technical book on, on computer programming. And, and the... Uh, and it was a great pun when he when he used it because it, he, he was talking about how hard it is to introduce a new order of things when he's talking about sorting on computers. But uh, um, and I always just loved that quote, and so um, it seemed to me to describe a dynamic of a community where um, you have a bunch of people who have uh, a uh, something to lose. I mean, they're, they're, they're rich, they're powerful, they're uh, prestigious, uh, whatever, and that somebody comes along with something which in uh, Silicon Valley nowadays would be called disruptive. But uh, whatever it is, it, it's a threat to uh, their way of life. And, and I'm not saying anything 
uh, particularly bad either about the people or, or the or the threat. It, it's it, it's in the case of nanotechnology, for example. Um, Eric Drexler, following uh, the, the the other guys who had, who had looked at that sort of thing, um, had this really keen idea of, of a technology that that could um, basically work at the atomic scale and rearrange uh, atoms into whatever arrangements you wanted them to be arranged in, and started talking about how we would go about, you know, discovering how to build that and use it and and so forth, um, and so. Uh, he had uh, built up a, a a fairly large and interested following in uh, among technical folks uh, for his his ideas of nanotechnology. And so when the uh, President Clinton actually got into the into the game and and started funding it, um, it was uh, expected by by all of us who were, were working in the in the field, expect to be okay. This is cool. We're we're off to the races now. We got a billion dollars a year. Well, what happened was that in the the way these things worked, that billion dollars wasn't a billion dollars of new money. It was places where other science programs had been robbed of their money, and so all the people in those in those subfields, you know, everything from. Uh, 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 surface physics to um, macromolecular chemistry to um, uh, certain kinds of uh, molecular biology to blah blah, blah. Any, anything that uh, they had stolen money from um, and stuck into the the national nanotech initiative uh, all of those people were suddenly faced with losing their funding so what do you expect them to do? Come up with some way to say, no, no, what we're doing is nanotechnology too, and we've been doing it longer than they have, and um, and that's basically what they did. And and you know, if you if you kind of looked at what was going to happen given the the zero sum nature of of, of, of science funding, uh, that's just what happens when you have a zero sum game, and um, you can't make anything new without taking it from somebody else. And so uh, it was a a very classic instance of uh, the pattern that Machiavelli noticed and, and, and talked about in his book. So can you just, uh, for those who haven't read it, can you just summarize the pattern? Oh, the, the pattern is basically if you, if you have a, a cool new idea, um, that's going to impact the way a lot of existing powerful interests um, work. You're in a very dangerous position, and the reason is that everybody who sees you taking something away from them is going to be up in arms and, and have a knife out for your back. And everybody who might benefit by the new idea or the the progress or the or the whatever it is um, isn't necessarily going to realize to the same extent what they're going to get or or might not even believe it, and so um, the cards are very much stacked against you in uh, producing a, a and and bringing to fruition a new idea, a new technology, a new science, a new whatever. Um, and the better organized 
the old interests are, um, the more that's true. I'm just hunting down some of these uh, quotes. And so I think one, one notable thing is that, uh, so here's one, this is from Asimov that you quote. This one is incredible. Uh, I discovered to my amazement that all through history there had been resistance and bitter, exaggerated, last-ditch resistance to every significant technological change that had taken place on Earth. Usually the resistance came from those groups who stood to lose influence, status, money as a result of the change, although they never advanced this as their reason for resisting it. It was always the good of humanity that rested upon their hearts. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the truth, though? I don't think people out, so one of the things that's difficult, I think, for people to grasp about climate catastrophism and how modern climate science works is most people aren't familiar with how government-funded research works and how establishments work in general. So I think the model in people's mind is it's just a bunch of free-thinking Galileos who tell you exactly what they think, and that's it. And you know, one of the points you make in the book is there are certain things about human nature or at least human potential that are constant and the people in these fields act much differently than, than the uh, kind of the, the halo or angel view of everyone who calls himself a scientist that many people outside that world hold them. They hold. Yeah. Well, there's, there's uh, plenty of scientists that are, that are really out there, really out there interested in the, in the science um, because that's what they, what they do. Um, there are also probably about as many who um, started out that way, but now it's basically their career and, and they're not going to um, let it go. And they are, in fact, going to uh, uh, act in such a way as to make uh, their field more important to the extent that they can. Um, and then there are the people who are um, just the, the plain out activists and, and all they care about is, is uh, making a buck and getting on TV and um, uh, getting people to, to send in money to them. And um, when, you, when you put those together, unfortunately, they produce something of a, uh, of a pipeline where um, you know, truth goes in one end and, and, and something quite different comes out the other. Yeah, and one thing I take from your examples, although I did I did come in thinking this, but it's it's just a different phenomenon when it's government at the center. It's really it has a lot of the features of the classic government monopoly. So it's much less of a competitive system. This applies to science and to research and stuff. And it really becomes this monopolistic system, which this reminds me of one of my favorite Ayn Rand essays that mo nobody has read. It's called the establishing of an establishment, and it's basically takes okay. the idea that yeah. that. I don't know if you, have you ever read that one. No, I'm I'm not really a uh, an encyclopedic reader of 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 Rand. I've I've read her um, major novels and some of her essays, but I wouldn't say I knew. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm. I, so I that stuff. happens to be my background. So I I'm not an encyclopedic reader on everything as you are, but I I am on on that. And these just but these shaped yeah. So the establishing of an establishment was just about this phenomenon of how can the seemingly innocuous thing of giving money in support of something lead to all kinds of tragic uh, 
behaviors in terms of suppressing bad ideas and stuff. So that's that when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, these are amazing examples of this, uh, of this phenomenon. So I want to jump to, got so much to talk about, but I want to jump to nuclear. So which you have a lot of fascinating stuff about what was the, um, I'm using my term, I like to describe what the government did as criminalizing nuclear. So I won't ascribe that to you necessarily, but what was the trajectory of nuclear energy before the government started criminalizing it? Well, actually that, that, I don't think there really was one. Um, the, uh, the science, if you, if you, uh, if you want to read probably one of the most fascinating books written in the 20th century, um, was, uh, the invention of the atomic bomb, um, Richard Rhodes. Richard Rhodes, right? Yeah, and 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 you know, if you if you haven't read that one, or any of your uh, listeners haven't read that one, go read it. Um, and uh, but it's uh, first and foremost the, the the really cool, interesting part about it is about the science and how people came to discover this stuff. Um, you know, while some of them are trying to flee uh, being knocked off by the Nazis and and get to America and, and all this sort of stuff all at the same time. Um, but then the, but then the thing changed once, once it became a major government project to build an atom bomb that, you know, the, the super weapon whose shadow fell across, you know, the rest of the forties and, and the fifties and so forth. Uh, nuclear science was born secret. Uh, it never had a, a a flourishing as an engineering uh, field that was unfettered by by government regulation, um, and it, it's actually there it wasn't wasn't very much you could do in 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 just the pure science of it either. Um, so uh, this was you know this this was a, a baby that was strangled in the cradle. Um, because it, it never really had a chance. Um, and I, I don't think that there was ever a case where somebody said, oh, here's this you know, beautiful, flourishing uh, nuclear science and technology. Oh, let's go and uh, uh, criminalize it. I, I think what did happen was that the uh, people who somewhat reasonably wanted to prevent nuclear war, um, kind of got to the point where everybody believed that and um, the possibility or probability of, of, of a, a major nuclear exchange that would, would be threatening to uh, all life on Earth um, had withdrawn into the background and all these activists saying nothing to do. So they said, oh, well, let's go after nuclear X. And it didn't matter what it was as long as it had the, the same word attached to it. They were, they were all geared up for it. And so um, there was an activist backlash against nuclear power that, um, that started happening in the, in the 60s, basically. Um, but but you know, it came to full fruition uh, in the 70s when uh, basically they, they uh, destroyed the nuclear power industry. I mean, so you have a lot of good statistics that are, probably aren't new to this book, but I don't think most people are familiar with in terms of how long the construction of plants took, what the costs were. Can you talk about that trajectory just in terms of it being fairly cheap 
and then becoming incredibly expensive. Yeah, and if I remember, I don't, I don't have the thing in front of me, but if I remember the uh, the amortized cost of uh, plants before um, the the backlash and and the uh, the strangulation of of the industry was was the equivalent of less than a cent per kilowatt hour, and then uh, it just skyrocketed to the point where um, people were looking to build almost anything else except a nuclear plant. Yeah, I mean, you had a good analogy that, you know, if if shipping were something like if shipping were like nuclear, like shipping would be expensive too if you could only go at one mile an hour. Right, and that's that's actually um, something where you can, you can make a, a very strong case that the existing regulatory agencies um, are just way overstepping any reasonable bounds on, on what they do. The, uh, there's a, and, and I think this is probably a legacy of, of the uh, anti-nuclear activists as much as anything else, because the, uh, the popular understanding of radiation dangers is just completely out of line with anything based in uh, physics or physiology or anything else like that. Yeah, and there's a lot of good examples in the book of radiophobia and just how, and you talk a lot about, or a decent amount about linear no threshold, which we've covered before on this right. podcast and the irrationality of that. I'm curious, I know this isn't your primary field, but what kinds of legal and regulatory reforms are necessary to what, to unstrangle nuclear, as I would call it, decriminalize nuclear? Um, I'm not sure you can do it that way. I, I, I think you have to somehow uh, change how people see it and how much, how, how well people understand it, and then you would be able to start budging the, the bureaucracy. But as long as activists can always whip up uh, a fresh set of fears, the way they did for Fukushima, for example, um, over what's essentially no threat whatsoever, um, and they can't. Uh, then uh, it's probably not going to be anything like a uh, an easy job to uh, rationalize the the bureaucracy and regulatory environment. Oh well, okay, but just to push back, if we let's say that that were changed, and so we could wave a wand, which I know we can't, mm -hmm. but what's the like? What would the policy be that would deal with any legitimate dangers? of nuclear that would deal with them properly and proportionally, but would otherwise leave us free to say, I mean, I think people should be able to build reactors in their garage, but I'm curious what, what your thought of the ideal societies. Well, I'd love to be able to build a reactor in my garage. Um, I think I probably could do it in a, in a safe way. Um, but, uh, I'm not sure I would want my neighbor building a reactor in his garage because I'm not sure he could. So I, I think that it ought to be at least as regulated as um, uh, cars and heating systems and uh, building codes and, and, and stuff like that, and probably a bit more. But still there ought to be um, the the ability for people who actually know what they're doing uh, to go and uh, experiment 
and uh, a lot more than there is now. I mean, uh, you know, if, if I if I want to buy a piece of plutonium and 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 keep it in my pocket, it would be a dumb thing to do. But I should probably be able to do it. On the other hand, I probably should not be able to buy plutonium dust and start spreading it around. So there's there's a line in there to be drawn. And I haven't really gone into anything like the amount of detail that it would take to to, to give you anything like a, a a decent coherent answer for that. All right, that's a, that, that that's a helpful start. As I said, I, I know it's not your field, but you do, I, I expected you to have insight on it, and you do. So let's talk about the more your side of it. Talk about what what could we have? So let's say we had the right kinds of regulatory political changes, the right kind of cultural attitude. What could happen in the future in terms of the upside of nuclear? Oh, well, it basically, um, my, my understanding and belief, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm less up on, on nuclear than I am on AI and nanotechnology simply because I've actually worked in those two fields, and, and I'm more of an interested in amateur as far as, as nuclear is concerned. But... It seems to me, and, and, and I you know, make this case, I think, fairly well in the book, that once you have, uh, especially nanotechnology, you have an ability to do things with, with nuclear that would be very cumbersome or, uh, frankly, impossible now. Um, and uh, one of the things is that, that you, could, uh, you could simply produce nuclear reactions on an atom by atom basis where uh, the bulk methods that we have now to do uh, anything like that simply prevent you from being able to get the kind of results that, that we would want. Um, and once we had that, you could make um, considerably smaller reactors. You could make um, things that uh, would use uh, the energy stored in uh, radioactive isotopes uh, and so forth. And with the, uh, the rest of technology following along, uh, there's, there's just this huge store of energy out there. Um, you know, as, as I point out at one point in the book, if you just go up and, 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 and dig, go out and dig up the seabed, there's more energy in it than there would be in pure coal. Um, and that's at you know uh, microscopic uh, fractions. Are we talking you know parts per million of, of uranium? Um, you can uh, very very likely extract uranium from just plain seawater um, at a uh, uh, viable cost uh, to run your your stuff. So if you're a uh, uh, you know a boat or um, other seagoing Thing, like floating islands and whatnot that uh, um, we are almost certainly going to be building during the 21st century. Um, you don't have to uh, spend half of your income importing oil. You just suck it out of the ocean. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is that there, there are several generations of reactors, even now with, the, with the, um, the history and the regulation and the collapse of interest in nuclear physics you may remember the um, the graph in the book that that shows the uh, number of PhDs in nuclear physics just yeah. collapsing in the in the uh, 60s, 70s. Um, the 
there's still enough new knowledge out there. I mean, there's, there's a there's a there's a company called NewScale that's that's trying to make small modular reactors, um, and so far they've spent a billion dollars in paperwork. Um, it's a uh, it's a shame, but you know that that's the way the the industry works right now. And yet there's still enough ideas out there um, that uh, you know if, if if I were a country uh, that were not part of the United States and I I wanted to uh, invent new uh, nuclear reactor technology, um, I might worry that the United States is going to come and, and you know, uh, squelch me simply because they were afraid I was going to be building nuclear weapons. Uh, which, I mean, that, that definitely happens. On the other hand, some of these, you know, little tin pot countries are, so you never quite know. But the, uh, um, the last the last news I saw about New Scale was that they were actually trying to um, test reactors in South Africa. Um, so who knows how that's going to work? But uh, um, there are there are avenues out there where people can take some of this uh, pent up knowledge about um, nuclear technology and, and and put it to use. But it's really going to get interesting, useful, and 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 widespread after we get nanotech um, and. So that's why I, I, I tend to think of um, those two as, as being part and parcel of a, of a second atomic age uh, that uh, each brings something that the other needs. Well, so as we wrap up, I want you to just talk a little bit about nanotech since that's, I think, the, your main field of expertise, or at least that along with AI. So what is, so nanotech is not something that most of us have much exposure to at all, except that it involves really small stuff. And I, 98% of what I know, I learned from your book. So I expect most listeners okay. know, know nothing. So could you just, I know you have infinite knowledge about it, but could you just summarize what it is and what, what the potential is and why there's reason to believe this could actually happen? Because when you discuss it, it, it can seem like there's no way this could actually work. Yeah, well, it, it, um, it's been argued that it couldn't work, but I'm fairly certain it can't. Um, the, the idea is that we know that um, molecular machines, that, that is to say, um, most of the ones that we have are evolved, although now we're beginning to build some that, that were designed. Um, but in order for uh, a molecular machine of this kind, the, the gadgets inside your cell, the stuff that make living possible, are atomically precise that they're, they're they're quote designed they're they're uh to a uh a design that calls specifically for each atom that's present in the machine and when you get a machine that's that precise it can begin to do things that bigger uh less carefully specified and 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 less precisely built machines can't do. And among them is actual chemistry to um, cause the reactions that you want to happen to happen exactly where you want them to happen and, and, and uh, cause other reactions uh, that you would get if simply, you know, you, you mixed stuff up and heated it. Um, uh, it w wouldn't happen so precisely. And so Things like 
um, reversing the process of, as I put it in the book, um, you digest a hamburger and you get stuff that's made of exactly the same atoms as the hamburger was, but they're, you know, nothing like the hamburger. Well, nature actually reverses that process. You know, it, it, um, you know your, your, your waste processes go out and they get picked up by plants and uh, the plants get eaten by animals and so forth. And so there is actual molecular machinery that does exactly what we want. It just doesn't do it as well controlled and fast as we would like. Um, and so it's basically um, the, the simple way of saying what nanotechnology is, is what happens when you start working with um, molecular biology to the point where you actually understand it and control it and then get to improve it and optimize it. Um, and uh, you get things that are like machines, only um, they can grow and reproduce and, and, and do all the other things that, that life does. And in particular, um, run, these, run these life processes backwards. Um, and while you're at it, it turns out that you can make things that are stronger and faster and, and, and have much higher um, energy density and so forth if you just start studying the specifics of it. Um, and so uh, we've, we've come a long way towards that uh, in our uh, manipulation of, of, of molecular biology uh, over the, the past 50 years. This is actually one of the places where um, progress didn't stop. We're, we're, we're much better at that. Um, the, the COVID vaccines that just got produced in, in less than a year uh, would have been impossible even 10 years ago. Um, so uh, we're, we're getting a lot better at the stuff on the molecular scale. All we need to do is to have a technology that um, acts on all the scales between our scale, where you move things around with your hands, um, and the molecular scale so that once we have uh, a molecular machine that can do something, we can put it where we want it and hook its output to the input of the next one and stuff like that. And, and so you're, you're looking at a, um, basically the, the, the two guys that, that talked about this used different words, but they said the same thing. You take any arrangement of atoms and rearrange it to be any other arrangement of atoms of the same atoms. You can't produce new atoms and, and you can't cause them to, to vanish, but you can rearrange them. And it's completely within reasonable expectations that we, we will have a technology that um, can arrange atoms about as well as we can arrange nuts and bolts um, today, uh, you know, in, in, in your own um, shop or your mechanic shop or whatever, um, only atoms. And so the, there's all sorts of things that sound uh, ludicrous and, and, and ridiculous simply because you're just not used to thinking in those terms. Uh, but uh, one of them is simply that uh, you, can, you can build machines that uh, uh, reproduce themselves in uh, remarkably short amounts of time. And when I say reproduce themselves, um, I'm talking in, a, in an economic sense. I'm saying the, um, a factory can reproduce itself because it, uh, you know, a big industrial concern can, 
can actually have a, uh, a factory that, that produces everything you need to build another factory, and then you go out and build a factory. Um, and uh, in current technology, that, that, that takes a decade or two. Um, in a nanotechnology, because they're, they're um, so much smaller, and the amount of time it takes for the factory to produce uh, stuff on its own scale is therefore shorter, um, you get a, uh, a much higher uh, reproduction rate and therefore um, a higher growth rate in an economic sense. And yeah. there, there's no need to go with any particular gadget that we have talked about in, in, in nanotechnology. The thing is that when you capture technology at that scale, your economic growth rate um, can turn into something like Moore's Law in, in uh, computers. Right, which you'd say is 60% year-over-year growth, which is very different than which sounds what we Which sounds kind of ridiculous, but the fact is that um, – and, and in fact, what, what's going to happen is, is that, that once we get some basic technology working at that rate, it's just going to be like the computer. Um, you know, my, uh, the box my computer is in um, didn't get built any faster than, than um, the box that my previous computer was in and the box it was in because um, the box isn't subject to Moore's Law. But the more things that you get being manufactured by um, – uh, self-reproducing machines, the more stuff comes under Moore's law, and um, so you can you can begin to imagine boosting the economy uh, into some really amazing growth rates, um, assuming that's what you want to do. Yeah, it's it's very exciting. I mean, my like my love of energy, I think, at the core is that I just love the phenomenon of human beings transforming nature intelligently. And this is just doing that on such a precise and therefore uh, powerful level. So it's, it's very exciting to learn about. One final question, uh, you can talk about nanotechnology or anything else. What are, what are changes or reforms that we can encourage that, that have the highest chance at you know, moving us forward and having less stagnation and more progress? We talked about nuclear being quite difficult in terms of changing perception, but are there any low-hanging fruit that could unleash significant amounts of progress? Well, I'm not sure. Um, I like to talk about, uh, uh, there, was, there was in the, in the 50s um, a lot of study of systems with feedback. Um, and the computer kind of came out of that but took over. And the people who are studying the brain and uh, social systems and the, the general phenomenon of, of feedback, um, which ultimately turned into control theory and, and, and got esoteric and wasn't anywhere near as popular as, as, as it had been, um, had uh, an idea that somehow they were going to be able to improve the way uh, governance and regulation and, and uh, a whole bunch of other uh, social uh, interaction worked. And if you look around at the world, you'll see that 
one of the things that if you fixed it, if you son, somehow managed to do it right instead of the way it's being done now, that would have the most value, it would be uh, would be governance, would be actual um, getting these regulations at, at the right level and 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 intelligently made and um, and not strangulizing uh, new technologies and 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 not criminalizing nuclear power and 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 so forth. The the thing is that this is a very a very difficult thing to do. But on the flip side, it's a very 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 valuable thing to do. And so if people start figuring out how to do it, and I don't really know how to do it, or I would be doing it, but um, if people start figuring out how to uh, do this governance function um, better, if you, if you could turn uh, the, I think I used in the book, uh, turn Nigeria into Norway, uh, you would just inherit an enormous amount of new value. And even if you could only just capture 1% of that somehow, um, you'd be rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And so there's, there's at least a push, um, even though it is still a very, very hard problem. So that, that is something that might happen, and it might come out of you know, people working in, in artificial intelligence or, uh, or something like that. Um, so that's, that's the wild card. It's something I, I, I certainly hope can happen. Um, on the other hand, it's not something I, I think is inevitable. Yeah, I, li- I like that as a focus, and I think your your book does give a lot of motivation for figuring that out. I mean, I would think of it as as how to properly liberate the economy and the human mind, because you you give lots of examples of how when it's strangled, it's it's destructive in immediate ways, and particularly in long term ways, in terms of just slowing growth and and preventing advances. Uh, what the so obviously, I'm encouraging everyone to read your book. Josh, is there anything else that they should know about your future plans or anything else of yours that they should consume uh, if they've been excited by this interview? Um, well, the only thing going on right now is that uh, Stripe Press has uh, approached me to produce a beautiful hardback version of the book, which is expected to be out next year. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So, well, we will, uh, is, is there going to be any change in the content or is it going to be exactly the same? It's going to be edited down a little bit since simply to make it fit in a, a, a decent size <laughs> a hardcover. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and maybe uh, I, I'm, I'm still working with the editor as, as to uh, uh, how much or whether even to, to, to change the, um, the way the, the um, book is arranged or the, the, or the voice or, you know, whatever. But uh, obviously I don't want to change it much because there's so many cool people like you who seem to like it. The way yeah. It is. Do not, don't, don't change any of the controversial, but true insights. That's what I would say. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Joshua. It's uh, great to meet you. Thanks so much for writing the book and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks again to Jay Stores Hall for joining me on the show. So uh, we covered quite a bit, but the book is so dense that we only scratched the surface. So with this 
topic in particular, this author in particular, I'd really recommend picking up a copy of the book, looking through it. If you just even look at the quotations in the book, it's by far worth the price of admission. I learned of so many cool quotations. One thing in particular that I didn't talk about on the interview that I loved about the book is you get a sense of what truly progressive people were like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, even mid 1900s, and just their enthusiasm about what I would call intelligently transforming nature is so refreshing and very related their attitude toward nature is so refreshing as in they view nature as a place that's an amazing place to be, but it's not, a, it's not a naturally perfect place to be. So we do need to intelligently transform it. And they found a lot of meaning and a lot of excitement in that. So it's really cool to find brothers in spirit from the past who think about these things much the way that I do. And I'm sure much the way that many of you do. All right, a couple quick updates. This is not really an update, but next week I should have an update or very close to having an update on my next book on fossil fuels. I think you'll be excited by that update when it comes out. So there's that. Uh, keep checking out energytalkingpoints.com, but in particular, if you know any politicians who are in the House, in the Senate, or in governor's offices, I am starting a new briefing called Energy Talking Points Live. That's free to, it's just for elected officials for now. But if you know any elected officials, please put them in contact with me, alex at alexepstein.com. I would love to invite them and to have them at this briefing. The idea is to take the approach to messaging, the pro-human fact-based approach to messaging that energytalkingpoints.com gives, but to give it in a, a customized and current way to people who are trying to make the world a better place through better energy policy. And there are tons of bad energy forces right now, but I believe if we empower the right people with the truth and the right arguments and the right references, we can go a long way toward uh, improving things. And at the same time, there are a lot of bad forces right now, and not just in terms of the obvious kind of Biden AOC on energy, but among the Republicans, there are many forces saying, okay, it's just time to pass a carbon tax or it's time to make terms or some of them are obsessed with these things like let's have a trillion trees program, like let's grow a trillion trees and somehow that's going to accomplish something besides causing more out of control wildfires on forests that we're not going to properly manage. So we really need some good ideas and some good messaging. And so I'm very excited about the prospect of offering that directly to elected officials who are then going to be legislating about these issues and speaking with quite a big megaphone about these issues. All right, that's it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you are not on my mailing list, sign up at alexepsteinlist.com. I mentioned this occasionally, I've been doing a lot on LinkedIn lately. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff there. So if you want to friend me or follow me, go for it. Just do not send me any unsolicited offers for business coaching, which a lot of people seem to do, uh, but happy to be your buddy on LinkedIn. And besides that, uh, I guess a couple more things. There is, I've been doing a lot of virtual speaking lately. I think there was a period in the last week where I did five events in seven days. So if you have any virtual events coming up where you'd, or you'd like to just set one up with me spontaneously, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. 
And also, if you want to support our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts, become an accelerator or re-up as an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I will be back next week. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a guest who is, uh, it turns out, one of the most impressive energy thinkers I've ever seen. I just learned about him. It turns out most interestingly of all to me, that he was a professor at my alma mater, Duke University, but I never ran into him because I was in computer science and philosophy, and he was in a totally different department. So we're going to have him the week, I think, of December 7th. I'll tell you more about that that week, and maybe as it approaches uh, the next couple of weeks, I got some more good guests in mind, so stay tuned. All right. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.